Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Adria Breyer, a member of the club's Health and Medicine member-led forum and the chair of today's program. As an international cancer consultant, it has been my privilege with the support of the committee to be able to invite highly recognized, credentialed people to give us empowerment in a medical establishment, which is generally disempowering. Dr. Lipton has 14 pages of credentials, and that's just the beginning. So I'm not going to read those credentials. I do want to tell you a few things about him, though. He has probably changed the lives of, I was thinking millions, but it's more likely billions of people. We were raised to believe that our genes make our lives It's a very disempowering thought, and then we're at the mercy of our genes and our heritage. Dr. Lipton had the courage decades ago to go against the entire traditional Western medical establishment and say that's not true. What's true is that you can change your life, you can change your everything by working with your environment. That's extraordinary. Your courage absolutely is astounding to me, and there's so many people who are grateful When we go back to the cancer arena, to bring that back to my specialty, with cancer, most of the time you're a foregone conclusion. With Dr. Lipton's work, we've been able to learn that we can change that diagnosis to a life, and it doesn't mean it has to be a death. With a background from NIH and Stanford, and I don't know how many other colleges and programs you created, it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Bruce Lipton to you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank each and every one of you for taking your valuable time and coming here tonight. I hope I have a story that will enlighten you, uh, give you some uh, understanding of how powerful you really are uh, in a world where you've been programmed to be victims. Uh, And this is time to take our power back because uh, the world is in a state of chaos, as you well know, and it's a state of evolution. And a part of this evolution is really to regain our own individual power to create the world that all of us would collectively like versus the one that uh, those people in charge think we want. Uh, We need to change this now. We're facing the sixth mass extinction of life, and it's due to human behavior. And the fact is now that means we have to understand the nature of this behavior and really how we control our lives. So um, I'm going to talk tonight uh, just briefly about some epigenetics, but I really want to introduce a whole new topic that is just getting off the ground, and it will be one of the biggest topics in biomedicine in, in the next couple of years. So it's a real exciting opportunity to hear something brand new that's coming our way right now. Before I do that, though, I really want to start off with a a conundrum that I face because I teach an immunology course in New Zealand. And one of the things that we talk about is an interesting fact that uh, when a human embryo is implanting, it's called a blastocyst, and it hits the wall or the lining of the uterus. The blastocyst has two groups of cells, the embryo cells uh, and a surrounding layer of cells which actually form the placenta. And what's really interesting, and here's where the conundrum comes from, here's actually the picture of one of these blastocysts on the surface of the uterus right now. I say, what's significant about it? And I say this, when you see it develop, what happens is that the blastocyst cells, and here in the picture is kind of orangey looking, And they integrate themselves into the maternal cells. So the placenta becomes anchored into the uterus of the woman where the cells merge from the placenta and the cells from the uh, uh, uterus come together. Now, the conundrum, 
the embryo's foreign cells and the nature of how did the foreign cells actually embed themselves into the uterus without being rejected by the maternal immune system. This becomes a serious issue because it is a foreign, it's a foreign system. By all rights, no embryo should be able to grow this way. So it's an interesting point. I think we're going to come back to it in a little bit. But before we get to there, I'd rather start off on a very uh, quick review of where we are and what's happening. Number one, um, biology is, uh, is understood through a Newtonian process called uh, uh, reductionism. Reductionism means you take something apart down to the smallest pieces, and when you understand the smallest pieces, then you can put it all back together again and understand the whole big thing. So when biology started to uh, look at the biology, first it was just uh, anatomy, surface anatomy, just what they could see. Then they started cutting inside, getting smaller, started doing gross anatomy. But then they started to do what is called microscopic anatomy. And every time it gets smaller and smaller, and then biochemistry comes in and then tells us about the molecules. Well, the relevance is this. I'll give you a simple insight, and that is this. Your biology, your behavior, and your anatomy are primarily due to what are called proteins. Okay? There are over 100,000 different proteins that make up a, a human. Uh, and different cells share different proteins, and some cells have unique proteins. And I say, well, these are where the character of life comes from, the physical and behavioral character. Well, science wanted to know, well, what controls that? Well, they started taking it apart again. They started taking it apart. And in 1944, it was found that the molecule called DNA was the molecule that represented heredity. And nine years later, in 1953, uh, we were shown for the first time what is called the double helix. And the relevance about this is that uh, we talk about Watson and Crick showing us this double helix, which is the blueprint to make the proteins. But I need to emphasize something in a Me Too world that I think should be brought up and put right in the front, and it's simply this. This work of understanding the double helix did not come from Francis Crick and Watson. It came from a woman, Rosalind Franklin. Rosalind Franklin's research was taken by her major advisor and given to Watson and Crick without her even knowing about it. And then they used her research to do this, and she was completely unaware that they had taken her research. So let's emphasize that it's Rosalind Franklin who was the discoverer of the DNA double helix, okay? And I said, well, what was the consequence of this? Well, once they took it down, they said, okay, the DNA is controlling the character of the proteins, the proteins are the character of life. The next important question is, well, what controls the DNA? And what they simply did was this. They took a DNA double helix like on the right, split it into a single helix like on the left, put it into a solution of building blocks of DNA, the, the molecules that build DNA, just stuck a single helix in and incubated it. And when they pulled it out, it was a double helix. And all of a sudden, this whole thing came like, oh my God, proteins give the character, DNA is the blueprint that controls the character, and DNA controls itself. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, end of search. Everything is coming from the DNA. That's what we bought. Francis Crick extends this. He extends it and he creates something called the central dogma. It is not my wording. That's the actual terminology that's in the scientific paper by Francis Crick. What does it show? The flow of information in biology, how it flows. Now, I, I put it in like the Ten Commandments because it has been the foundation of medical research ever since it was introduced in 1958. 
And I say, well, what does it mean? It says information in biology starts with DNA, the gene, is translated into RNA, which is like a Xerox copy, and then the RNA is the actual blueprint to build the protein. And it most important thing that you can understand from this flow is the arrows only flow in one direction. I say, well, what's the significance of that? And I say, we are not the DNA. We are not the RNA. We are the protein. And the question is, well, can you, body, protein, go back and affect your genetics? And the answer, obviously, is no. You can't do it. And all of a sudden it says, oh my God, what does that mean? Well, really what it means is that genes control our life and we don't control the genes. And I say, well, this is real interesting because basically what it does is it tells us that we have no control over our lives, that the genes are going to turn on and off and do everything and you're going to walk down the street and some gene's going to turn on and you're going to say, oh my God, I got cancer. I didn't do anything. Uh, and, and then we feel the victim. I say, why is it important that we have been programmed to feel like victims? And the answer is because a victim seeks a rescuer. Whoever comes up with the rescue can charge whatever the hell they want. And it's called the pharmaceutical industry, okay? And they charge crazy money, okay? They're screwing you out of all the money because you don't need them. For a simple fact is this. If a drug works on you, it only works because you already have a molecule that that drug is, is representing. And so the issue is, why should I buy their molecule if I can understand how to turn my own molecules on? I don't need them, okay? So uh, this has become a problem. I just want to show you a, a video that is being played in schools right now uh, to show you that the same idea is propagated continuously. And I say, okay, here's, here's the uh, video. Let's see if the sound's coming. So what are organelles? Organelle means little organ. Organelles are the specialized parts of a cell that have unique jobs to perform. Let's start with the nucleus, the control center of the cell. The nucleus contains DNA, or genetic material. DNA dictates what the cell is going to do and how it's going to do it. So what they just told us is a nucleus controls the cell. And they say that because that's where the genes are, and presumably the genes control the cell. And then they go on and tell you that, that the DNA dictates what a cell will do. And all of a sudden, I say, so a kid walks out of the school, and what does he say? Oh, DNA controls my biology, and DNA does it without me. <laughs> and DNA does it on its own. And that the brain of the cell is this nucleus. I go, that's a story that has been propagated for years. And, uh, and the problem about this is very simple. The work by Francis Crick, when he published it and was called The Central Dogma, uh, the central dogma was never scientifically validated. It was just a belief system that everybody was looking for at the time. And when they wrote it, everybody goes, oh, wow, that, that's it. That's it. And everybody got all excited and accepted the fact that DNA controls our life because they expected to find the answer. And here's the point. He wrote the paper. It was called The Hypothesis. But five years later, it's in the textbook. And now it's in the textbook, DNA control stuff. And that was by 19, you know, in the 60s. And it's in the textbook in 70, 80, 90, 2000, 2010. It's still in the textbook. And the fact was, it was never scientifically demonstrated to be true. It was collectively perceived as a truth without, you know, knowing it. I said, well, what's the consequence of it? Well, the consequence is simply this, that when we look at this uh, cover of Life magazine, it says, were you born that way? 
okay? Uh, what does it mean? Well, at first we thought the genes just covered the physical character of the body. But then they started to find genes that apparently controlled the behavior of the body. And then they found genes that they thought controlled the emotions of the body. And then basically what it came down to was a concept called genetic determinism. Genetic determinism is the belief that genes determine the character of your life. That's simple translation. I say, so what's relevant about this? I say, as far as you know, did you pick the genes you came with? No. If, if you don't like the characteristics you have, can you just go change the genes? No. The genes turn on and off by themselves? Well, that's what I'm told. I say, now put that together. I say, I didn't pick the genes. I can't change the genes. The genes control themselves. What the hell does that make me? Well, it makes you a victim. You have no control over your biology. Well, it was interesting because I had an opportunity to do some experiments back in uh, early 1960s uh, at Woods Hole in, uh, on the East Coast. And one of the things we did was something called enucleation, with that we would take uh, a micropipette and go into a cell and suck out the nucleus. I said, well, why is it relevant? Because we bought the belief that the nucleus is the brain of the cell. That's in the textbooks. It's still there right now. Nucleus controls the function of the cell. That's what the video just said as well. It dictates the behavior. I said, well, if it's the brain, here's an interesting fact. If it's the brain, I say, uh, if you remove the brain from an organism, what is the consequence of that? I go, well, immediately what the consequence is that... <laughs> uh, basically, it, it, it dies. But back in, in the early 1960s, I was doing this with cells. What I was doing was taking the nucleus out of the cell. It's a process called enucleation. And I said, well, what was the consequence of taking the nucleus out and throwing it away? And the answer was simply this. Cell lives for months. No change in behavior. It controls itself. It has the entire life spectrum. I go, it's doing this without any DNA. And so the idea that DNA is controlling the cell is immediately a false understanding because the cell has control without DNA. So we made a mistake. We focused on the DNA, and then we said the nucleus is the brain of the cell because that's where the DNA is. That's what we bought into, okay? Let me give you a fact, and this is, this is the fact. Genes do not control biology. They, they are blueprints. Genes are blueprints, just like in an architect's office. I say, why is it relevant? I say, go into an architect's office. She's working on her blueprint. You lean over her shoulder and you say, is your blueprint on or off? And she would look at you, are you crazy? It's a blueprint. There's no on and off. Precisely. A gene is a blueprint. It does not have any ability to turn itself on. It has no idea what the hell it does. Uh, it's just a blueprint. And we gave it a life. There's even, you know, some guys who say, oh, the body was created so the DNA could carry itself around, that we were now marginal to the DNA. <laughs> but the fact is this, where's the problem? And I'll tell you where the problem comes from. It's mixing two words, causation and correlation. You read it, and they mix the two words, and they're two different meanings. Causation, the actor agency which produces an effect. Correlation means a relationship existing between phenomena or things. I say, why is it relevant? Genes are correlated with disease. They're correlated with disease. Genes don't really cause disease. They don't have an action that can cause something, okay? Now, it doesn't mean you can't have a defect. And there are actually six major diseases, major meaning there are numbers to them, that are actually caused by a gene. 
And here, here are the, here's the, uh, let's just take a look at the six, uh, so you know what they are. These are single gene diseases. You got one of the gene for this, cystic fibrosis, hemophilia, Huntington's disease, Tay-Sachs, Marfan syndrome, hereditary hemochromatosis. If you don't have that running in your family, you don't have to do a genetic analysis because that's the only diseases. If, if that's running in your family, then having a genetic analysis, analysis, that's worth it to see if you're carrying one of those genes. But the issue is this. If you don't have that, then what's the use of, of the genes? Oh, we're going to study how all the diseases come about. I say, oh, the diseases come from genes? How much? And then I look at this, and I tell you right here. Blame genetics? Flawed genes cause less than 1% of all diseases. And all of a sudden, it's like, we have been programmed to believe that every disease, every malfunction, everything that goes wrong, there's a genetic cause. Less than 1% of diseases connected to genetics. And when it comes to cancer, it's less than 10% of cancer that has any hereditary linkage. I say, why is it relevant? Because 90% of people that get cancer had no genetic predisposition. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, then wait a minute. Genes are causing cancer? Well, oncogenes... I go, oncogenes, oh, give me an example. Oh, BRCA1. Angelina Jolie has a double mastectomy because her mother died, her grandmother died with the disease, and she found out she had the gene. So she has a double mastectomy as if that was going to protect her. And it will not protect her because those genes are found in the uterus and the ovary as well, so you can go there. But the point about it was this, is that how many people carrying the BRCA1 gene actually get the cancer? And it turns out, Less than 50%. I say, so why is it relevant? Well, 50% of the women are carrying the gene and they're not getting the cancer. The first thing is this. The gene does not cause cancer. And why is this relevant? Because women get scared. And I don't blame them. The way it comes off, oh my God, you got the BRCA1 gene. Oh my geez. Already your psychology is now screwed <laughs> because now you figure out, oh, geez, I'm now in trouble. Do genes really control life? I had a unique opportunity back in the early 60s. Uh, I was at the University of Virginia working with a brilliant scientist, Erwin Koningsberg, who uh, was one of the founding scientists of cloning. And so I had the opportunity in 1967 to be cloning stem cells. Now, let me just give you, inform you of something very simple. In 1967, there were few people, fewer people in the world that knew about stem cells than are in this room right now. 1967, it was an outside thing. Nobody knew. I say, okay, let me tell you what a stem cell is so we can get into it. A human body is not a single entity. That's an illusion. A human body is comprised of 50 trillion cells. The cells are the living entity. The human body, by a full definition, is a community. This is a community. Bruce is not an entity. Bruce is a community. Okay? And I say, well, what's relevant? Well, I have 50 trillion cells, but every day, just through natural attrition, cells start dying off. And you can lose hundreds. I'm going to throw the number out, and it's like, well, that's really nice. It's like, no. The massiveness of the number is hard to comprehend. I can say the number. Hundreds of billions of your cells die every day. Millions of cells are dying while I'm talking, okay? And, and why is it relevant? I said, well, how many days can you go if you don't replace the billions of cells that are dying every day? I said, well, you can't live very long. I said, well, then how come we're all here? And I can tell you why you're here is because you have stem cells. You go, ooh, I love those stem cells. What are they? And then I go... <laughs> 
stem cells are embryonic cells. And I said, well, why don't I call them embryonic cells? And I said, well, you did until the moment you were born. If I do a biopsy a moment before you're born, I can point it out and say, that is an embryonic cell. I wait the moment after you're born, do the same biopsy, look at the same cell and say, that's a stem cell. You're, in a, you're born. It's not an embryo anymore, so we change the name. But it, what does it represent? You are replacing your cells because you have a large population of stem cells, which are embryonic cells whose job it is to replace the cells that die every day. So your stem cells are embryonic cells. They're multipotential. I say, so what would I do? Back in 1967, I was cloning stem cells. I say, well, what does that mean? I put one stem cell in a Petri dish all by itself. And then what happens? I say, well, once you put one cell in, it divides every 10 or 12 hours. So first one cell, then two, and then four, eight, 16, 32. After a week, 30,000 cells in the Petri dish. I go, what's relevant? I go, they all came from one parent. So one parent cell provided, what, 30,000 genetically identical offspring. So 30,000 genetically identical cells. What did I do? I split the cells into three different Petri dishes. So all the dishes have genetically identical cells. And then uh, you grow cells in a laboratory in something called culture medium, which we make in the lab. I say, yeah, but what is it? Now, are you ready? This is going to come back. It's the equivalent of human blood. I look at the composition of human blood and create a synthetic version of it called culture medium. If I'm going to grow mouse cells, I look at mouse blood and create a synthetic version for that. But wait, I'm creating the culture medium, so I create three variations. Slight change, just a slight change in the chemistry. So the culture medium is the environment. So I have three environments, three dishes. I say, so what's the consequence? I say, well, in dish one, with environment one, A, in this case, environment A, the cells form muscle. I say, wait, wait. Dish two, slightly different culture medium. Wait, the cells form bone. Wait, wait, wait. Third dish, slightly different culture medium, and the cells form fat cells. Well, while I'm teaching medical students that genes control life, I come into the laboratory and see this. So what is the result of this? Can you see how profound it is? And the point is this. The fate of the cells is not determined by the genes. They all have the same genes. The fate of the cell was determined by the environment in which the cells live, which means if you change the environment like this, you change the fate of the cells. Well, back in 1967, of course, all my colleagues looked at me as a total weird guy because everybody knew genes controlled life except for me. I was the only one who didn't know that. And, and the relevance about that is what was neat is this is totally predictable. I can tell you what's going to happen three days from now when I start the experiment. And the point about science is based on predictability. But not if you're predicting against the mass wishes. <laughs> and I was predicting that, no, the genes are not controlling life. It's the environment. And then they were a little miffed about it because the first thing is, well, how does that happen? I didn't have an answer. I had an observation, but no answer. So they dismissed it. I walked out. I was at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine. I had tenure. I walked out, and everyone thought I was crazy, and I, I didn't think that until maybe 15 seconds after I left my <laughs> resignation and walked out the door going, what did you do? <laughs> and, and so I was fortunate enough to then have some time. I got into quantum physics. You go, what the hell are you doing that? I tell you, you know, you could watch something like I Love Lucy or something, but quantum physics? Uh, and the significance is this. Physics means mechanism, 
Newtonian physics, Newtonian mechanics, quantum physics, quantum mechanics, mechanisms. So if you want to understand how the universe works, you don't first look in biology, you first look in physics, because that gives you the mechanisms of the universe. Well, the interesting part about it was I and all of my colleagues never had any quantum physics. And quantum physics, I'm going to give you a fact right now, the most valid science on planet Earth today is quantum physics. There's no science that has been tested more and affirmed to be true than quantum physics, okay? And so with that background a little bit, uh, I was thinking about, oh, maybe I can get a, you know, a job. And I started to apply to a bunch of places and mediocre schools because I figured I was at a top school. I walked out. I'm sure they're not going to say, welcome me back into a top school. Uh, and I got turned down by all of them very distressing. And right in the midst of it, turn down, I get a phone call from Stanford. And they asked if I wanted to come out and, and, and interview for a science position. So, of course, I went out there uh, and they took me in. And at that time, I was, uh, I loved it because when I walked in the lab, they, they were doing like the Twilight Zone, do, 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 Lipton's here. Uh, before I left, the science of epigenetics has become the new science. 1990, officially recognized as the new science. You say, what is epigenetics? I say, well, what is genetics? You've learned genetics. It's actually genetic control. This character is under genetic control, meaning whatever character you're talking about, structural, behavioral, emotional, was attributed to a gene that was controlling that character. Okay, so we bought into the belief that genes are, are, are controlling our life at this point. And epigenetics changes the game because when I say genetic, genetics or genetic control, genetic control means control by genes. I say, what's the new science? Epigenetic control. Well, it sounds like the same darn thing. I go, yes, it sounds the same, but it's a revolution. Why? Epi means above. Skin is called epidermis the layer above the dermis. So when you say epigenetic control, it translates simply as what? Control above the genes. My God, finally, 1990, science began to recognize that genes are not activating and controlling themselves, that it's the environment that's doing this, okay? And so uh, after 23 years, uh, they stopped laughing at me. It was really nice. Uh, <laughs> So I said, well, how does it work? Let's take a look at how it works. And I'm going to give you the insight to how it works. And it's so simple. And I love it because we have a tendency to make things complex when basically they start out simple and then humans add complexity to it. So I said, well, how does it work? So I say, well, okay, let's understand. Number one, I said, wait, proteins are the building blocks of life. They are the structures that create your cells. And all of us, uh, you look in the mirror, you're looking at a protein machine. It's a protein machine, okay? And I go, well, this is really interesting because these protein molecules, and there's over 100,000 different ones, each protein has a unique shape, okay? And when you assemble them like a giant Lego kit, uh, then voila, this is like Lego Man right here made out of proteins, and I go, well, what's relevant about it? And I go, well, really what's relevant about it is something that is so interesting because what's relevant about, oh my God, secret of life. <laughs> secret of life. I am going to tell you the secret of life. And you're going to expect, oh my God, it's going to be something fabulous and the ceiling will open up and the light will come in. I go, no, it's simpler than that. Here's the secret of life. 
We have over 100,000 proteins. Each protein has a unique shape. But what we now know is that an environmental signal that complements the protein, like a lock and key interaction, different signals and connect with different proteins. I say, what's the consequence? When a signal is bound to the protein, it changes shape. And the shape changes movement. And movement is where life comes from. And it's real interesting because then it says, you're made out of proteins, and the proteins respond to the environmental signals, and they move, and I say, well, what's the result of movement? Metabolism, walking around, uh, all the functions of your body are due to what? Proteins machines. So we're a protein mechanism in that regard, okay? So I say, well, the environmental signal is controlling the proteins. I say, well, wait, the proteins are inside the cell. How does the environmental signal get to the cell? And so I started to look at what is called the cell membrane. And in the electron microscope, that little dark light lining across the surface, this is an electron microscope. You can't see it in a light microscope. They didn't even know the cell membrane existed until after the electron microscope. I say, why is it relevant? Basic character of biology, structure implies function. And so when biologists saw the f structure of the membrane, they went, eh, doesn't do much. It's like plastic wrap that holds a cytoplasm. That's essentially what they thought it was. It's just holding a cytoplasm together. Little do they know how smart Mother Nature is. Mother Nature is unique. I said, well, what? I said, what happened in this? It looks like this double layer. I said, well, here's what the double layer really looks like. It's that. It's a double layer of uh, what are called phospholipids. Phosphate is water-loving, the orange heads. The lipids are the legs. So it's almost like a bread and butter sandwich if you think about it. The water can be absorbed in the phosphate groups, but it can't go across the membrane. So the membrane is a barrier. It doesn't let the environment get inside the cell. I say, yeah, but what you couldn't see in that microscope built into the cell, there are proteins built into the cell. And there are two classes, main classes of proteins. One class has antennas on it. Well, having an antenna, it's the receptor. It's a receiver, okay? The other one is called an effector. It makes an effect. And so I say, well, what does this represent? This is a switch in biology. You activate the receptor and engages the effector, and the effector sends a signal inside the cell. I said, and what happens when the signal goes in the cell? I said, it causes proteins to move and create life. So I go, wow, so what, what is this? Well, actually what this is, receptor, stimulus, effector, response. Another, and Silicon Valley way of looking at it is this, receptor is input, effector is output, I-O. <laughs> Okay, and then I say, well, what else is? I said, well, it's an information processor. It's a switch. It reads the environment through the receptor, over 100,000 of these in the membrane, and then what does it do? It translates the environmental signal via the effector into a signal that controls the cell. And the fact is this. I don't have a lot of time, but I can assure you a very major fact. A computer chip made out of silicon and a cell membrane made out of carbon have the exact same components and function in the exact same way. So the point is this. A membrane is not like a chip. A membrane is a chip.
It's an information processing chip. And that is a bit of data. One input, one output, I slash O, that's a bit of data. And there are 100,000 of them in a cell membrane. So it's a pretty complex uh, information processor, okay? So I said, well, how does it work? I say, if I take a cookie cutter and cut out a piece of the cell membrane, what I can show you is this. There's a receptor with an antenna. The effector in this case is called a channel. A channel is a protein that's closed normally, but when activated by a signal, changes the shape and opens up and sends a signal into the cell. So I said, well, how does it work? I said, well, the antenna is scanning the environment for a signal. Here's a connector. It's called a processor protein. Look at the shape of the connector and look at the shape of the receptor. And you can see they don't connect. They don't, they don't match. I go, yeah, but watch what happens. A signal comes up. Signal causes the protein to change shape. Once it changes shape, the processor protein connects to the channel, which changes shape, opens up and sends a signal in. When the environmental signal is gone, the switch is broken. When a signal returns, it reconnects, opens up the channel, and the secondary signal is going in and controlling the proteins inside the cell that do the functions. So the signal from the environment is connected to the functions of the proteins via these switches right here, okay? And this is a bit of data in a membrane, okay? So I say, well, what's the name of the switch? I go, well, the switch's name is easy. It's, a, it's called the Receptor Effector Integral Membrane Protein Complex. <laughs> what the hell does that mean? Well, it's complicated because science is like the church. We put it in Latin. You have no idea what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> but the fact is this. It's the receptor. What's the function of the receptor? Oh, wait. Maybe you noticed something. Where are your receptors? Where are your eyes? In the skin. Ears, in the skin. Nose, in the skin. Taste, in the skin. Touch, pain, temperature, pressure. Oh my God, you are in the same replica of a cell. Why? Your receptors are built into the skin as are the receptors of the cell membrane and both the cell and the human read the environmental signals via these switches that then control the function inside the cell. So I say, okay, what's the function of the receptor? Well, it's simple. Awareness of the environment. Eyes, ears, nose, taste, touch. These are molecular eyes, ears. I say, what's the function of the channel? It sends the physical signal in the cell. So I say, okay, channel is creating a physical sensation that now controls the proteins on the inside. So I say, so what's the definition of the cell membrane? In this case uh, of the switch. It represents the switch's awareness of the environment through physical sensation. Awareness of the environment, receptor, physical sensation, channel, right? Nod your head like you're, okay, thanks. Okay. And I say, so guess what? There's a word that you have been familiar with for years and years that has the exact same definition of what I just said. Awareness of the environment through physical sensation. I say, what word is that? There it is. Perception. What is perception? Definition. Awareness of the elements of environment through physical sensation. So I say then, what is the name of the switch in your membrane that controls a function? Perception. I go, absolutely it is. And I say, why is it relevant? If you change your perception, you change the switches. And all of a sudden it says, then all of a sudden, the, the switches which are controlling what? The behavior and the genetics are not controlled by random things at all. The switches are controlled about how you perceive your life. 
You see it as a positive thing or a negative thing. All of a sudden, it changes the biology completely just out of the way you're looking at your life, okay? So I go, well, important point about this, the conclusion is the switch equals perception. And I say, but not all your perceptions are true. Not all of them are true, but they still control them. Whether you, your perception is true or false, your perception is still controlling your biology, and that's why perception is belief. And I say, belief, the switches that control your, your biology are belief switches. What do you believe? That's your perception. I say, how does it work? I go, very simply, it works like this. Signals from the environment, and I'm using chemicals so you could see it. Let me emphasize at this moment. The best environmental signals that are most effective in controlling biology are not physical chemical signals, they're energy. Vibrational signatures are much more powerful and in controlling your proteins than our chemical. It's a hundred times more efficient, if the energy signals versus chemistry signals, okay? I say, so the signal lands on the surface, whether it's energy or a chemical, and so you can see it as a chemical. I say, then what happens? I say, well, the membrane transmits the, the switch, takes that signal and sends it inside the cell through the channel in this case. I say, what does it do? I say, what happens, this is a, a quiz, <laughs> Just uh, you still can remember possibly, what happens when a signal binds to a protein? Changes. It changes shape. Ah, and changing shape is behavior. So the idea is this, the signal from the environment is translated into a signal that affects a protein, the protein is engaged, and behavior. I go, yeah, but okay, got an issue. What if I need the protein, but it's not already present in the cell? Where would I get that protein from? <gasps> the nucleus. Why? Inside is the DNA. What is the DNA? The blueprint to make the proteins. So the signal from the environment will go into the nucleus, activate the genes, so that I have the protein that I need to make a response. And all of a sudden I say, did the genes turn on and off? I say, no, they had nothing to do with it. The, the, the genes were being read. Blueprints, you read the blueprint. The blueprint doesn't read you, it, you read it. So I say, why is this relevant? And the answer is very simple, is basically the new science that is affecting biology at this time is basically called signal transduction. Stop looking at all the genes and all these things. Start looking at what are the signals and how do they affect the biology because that's more important now than the genes are, okay? And I say, and a part of signal transduction, a part of it, is if the signal goes from the environment and goes into the nucleus and affects the genes, there's another name for it. It's signal transduction, but another name, and that name is epigenetics. The signal from the environment is controlling the genes, okay? Well, this becomes really critical because we said the nucleus was the brain of the cell. As it says in the textbook, as it just said in a video that's currently playing in schools, and I go, the brain is the nucleus? No. You know why? What is the nucleus? Answer, a bunch of blueprints. To do what? Reproduce the cell and its parts. Oh, my God. How did a whole bunch of male scientists come up with the idea that the gonad of the cell was the brain of the cell? <laughs> and, and, and the simple reality is, no, the brain is not the reproduction. The brain is the information processor. So the interesting part, it's the membrane that does that. And I say, well, how does this control genetics? So I say, well, first of all, you look inside a nucleus, you open it up, and you have chromosomes. I say, what are chromosomes? They're hereditary units. I go, yeah, but what are they made out of? Well, of course, D 
DNA, but 50%. I said, what's the remaining material in a chromosome? Huh? 50% protein. And I said, well, what's the function of the protein? And the answer is this. For 50 years, nobody cared. We were so myopically focused on the DNA, they don't care about the protein. So what did they do? Isolate the nucleus, take out the chromosomes, split the, cro- the protein from the DNA, save the DNA for the experiment, and throw away the protein for 50 years. Finally, somebody said, 50% of the nucleus, maybe it's doing something. (laughs) You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. And I started to look at it, so let me give you a picture of what a pro, uh, the chromosome really looks like. It's a core of DNA double helix molecules surrounded by a sleeve of protein. And I say, well, how does DNA work in this case? So I say, guess what? Consider my arm as a chromosome. My sleeve is the protein. Underneath my sleeve is the DNA. So if I use a magic marker and wrote the genetic code for blue eyes, hold up my arm and I ask you, can, can you read the gene for blue eyes? Pretend I, pretend I wrote it, okay? And you say, yes? And I say, yeah, but what does it look like when it's in the cell? Oh, it looks like this. Can you read the gene for blue eyes, yes or no? No. And if you want to read the gene for blue eyes, what must you do? Pull up the sleeve. Pull off the sleeve. What is it made out of? Protein. What causes the protein to change shape so it comes off? Signal. And so here's how it works. This is a chromosome, a sleeve of protein, a DNA core. At the beginning of each gene blueprint is a special protein called a regulatory protein. Regulatory? Very good name. Why? Well, a signal will come from the environment, go through the cell membrane, go through the cell, and end up going in the nucleus. As the signal comes in the nucleus, the signal, remembers like lock and key. It's going to find the exact protein that binds to. And when that signal binds to the protein, it causes the protein to change shape. When the protein changes shape, it pops off. Now you can read the blueprint. I say, so what's the DNA going to do? Absolutely nothing. Why? Because a protein is going to come up here and copy that DNA, and the copy is called RNA, and that's the Xerox blueprint that goes out into the cell to make the protein. I say, once I have the the RNA, I don't need the gene. The signal pops off. Boom. It's covered up. I say, why is it relevant? Well, for 50 years, we've talked about genes controlling stuff. So let's look at it one more time very quickly. No labels this time. Signal coming from the environment. Complementary protein binds to it, causes the protein to change shape. The signals cause the protein sleeve to pop off. The blueprint is readily available, but it's the protein that reads the blueprint. The DNA didn't do squat. I say, why is that important? I say, well, how many years and how many billions of dollars did we put into understanding the nature of the protein when, in fact, it's not, I mean, the, the DNA, when it's the protein that is controlling the whole darn thing. And yet the protein is responding to what? The environment. And all of a sudden it says, oh my God, you believe that the genes were turning on and off? I say, no, they didn't turn on and off. They were activatedly, they were read by information from the environment. You change the information from the environment, you change the reading of the genes. So number one, DNA 
is not controlling itself. That's the most important thing, okay? And I say, okay, uh, there are a couple of people as old as I am in here. <laughs> Remember a long time ago before television was running 24-7? They used to shut it off at night, and then he put on something called a test pattern. And I say, why is it relevant? I just want to illustrate it for you as this regard. A pattern is a gene. A gene is a pattern. I say, so here's the pattern on the TV set. Where does the pattern come from? Inside the TV? Come on. No. It's coming from the environment, okay? But why I'm saying that is important because there are switches on that TV set. On and off, volume, contrast, color, focus, horizontal. I say, look, let me change some of the dials and see what happens. I changed the pattern. Did I change the original broadcast from the company, yes or no? No. No. Okay, I want you to hold on to that, okay? I'm going to ask you again right after I show you the next one. I changed the dial some more. Changed the picture again. Did I change the original broadcast? No. 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 The emphasis is very clear. What I wanted to make a point is this. Epigenetics changes the readout of the gene, but does not change the gene. And the relevance is that uh, you you change everything by just changing the, the dials. And I say, but how does that relate to biology? And I go, here's a strand of DNA. And I say, that little loop down there, that's a gene. And I say, 3% of your genome are the gene blueprints to make your proteins, which automatically opened up an issue and said, geez, if 3% is making the proteins, what is 97% doing? And the answer to most people at that time is that the 97% was called junk DNA (laughs) because they figured cells were stupid like people and that they've been carrying around 97% of their DNA for a couple of billion years because they're stupid. And the fact is, my God, they're smarter than we are. Let me give you a little insight. Are cells smarter than people? Uh, The answer is yes. You know why? They made us. We were created by cells. Okay, and I say, well, what's relevant? I say, well, what happens is if you look at that 97% of the DNA, you find there are proteins, little clusters of proteins around the DNA. They're called modules, okay, chromosomes. I say, what are they? The simplification? They are the equivalent of the dials on the television set. You turn the dials on these protein modulators, and they change the readout of the gene, And all of a sudden it says, oh my God, by changing the dials, I can change the the expression of my genes. I go, yes, you can. Did you change the gene blueprint? Say no. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. So I say, what is epigenetics? Well, epigenetics is the environmental signals that are turning the switches on these modules. They're the ones that turn the switches. Okay. Uh, Epigenetics also uh, can inactivate the DNA. You say, why should it inactivate the DNA? Give a very simple insight. You get two copies of each gene because one from your mother, one from your father. And with the exception of the immune system, almost everything else only uses one of the two. So what does that mean? Somewhere in your development, one of them has to be shut off and the other one expressed. So epigenetics is selecting which one is going to be shown, okay? So I say, well, why is this relevant? And the answer is simply profound. And the answer is this, by turning the dials, I change the readout of the DNA. And the significance is, with epigenetic control, one gene blueprint can make over 3,000 different kinds of proteins, okay? So I go, well, how does it work? This is the summary of life. You're the protein. 
the environment sends a signal, and when the signal binds to the protein, it generates movement, which is called behavior. I go, okay, cool. What are these signals? Where, where are these signals? What the heck are they come from? Well, number one, let me quickly show you. I said I put cells in a Petri dish and feed it growth medium, and, and that controls the fate. Now I need to tell you what I already told you. You are not a single entity. You're made out of 50 trillion cells. You are a skin-covered Petri dish. <laughs> Under your skin, 50 trillion cells. I said, yeah, in the plastic dish, what controls the fate of the cells? The culture medium. Yeah, but the culture medium is the equivalent of blood. So now we transcend from culture dish to human body. And I say, skin-covered Petri dish? Got culture medium, the original, blood. And I go, well, what's relevant? Because the chemistry of the blood determines the genetic activity. That Whether the cell's in a plastic dish or a skin dish is irrelevant at this point, okay? So I say, well, how does it work? I say, they're environmental signals. That the nervous system is perception. I'm reading the environment at this moment. And then I translate my perception into chemistry, which I send via the nervous system and the cardiovascular system to the cells. That's the environmental signal that ends up at the cell determining what the genetic activity is going to be. So I say, then, what's the conclusion? The answer is profoundly important, is that environment is controlling behavior and genes. A fact. And you say, so what? And I just say, just stop for a second and say, what if I change the environment? <sighs> then you change your genetic activity. And all of a sudden, you can find there are environments where your genetic activity is giving you health, and there are environments where your genetic activity could cancel and compromise your health. And all of a sudden, we've been blaming the genes. I say, no, it was the environment. <laughs> and I say, why is it important? First thing, you ready? We're the ones that can change the environment. And if we can change the environment, then we're not victims. Because we're the ones that control the genes. But if you didn't know that, it was irrelevant, then, you know, it was useless information. But there's a problem with this story itself, and I'll tell you why. Because I left something out. What I left out was this. Yes, the environmental signals, yes, the brain picks it up, but what I didn't put in was mind. Oh, my God. Mind is interpretation of the signals. And I say, why is it relevant? Well, I'm reading the environment, brain picks up the signal, mind interprets it. Is that a good signal or a bad signal? Why? Well, it makes a difference because my mind is going to translate that signal into chemistry and send it to my biology via the perception uh, into the cardiovascular nervous system and down to the cells. And I go, so why is it relevant? Interpretation. Two people can be in the exact same environment, one of them a happy person who loves life and everything going, wow, life is really beautiful. The other one who has fear about things is looking around for things that scare them. I go, well, what is this guy looking for? Fear. What's this one? This guy's looking for happiness. I say, so what's the difference? If I take the interpretation and translate it, the one looking for fear is under stress. <laughs> the other one's happy, no stress. Okay. So I go, well, this is really cool. And I say, uh, is the interpretation, what does it represent? Interpretation is belief. It's your belief. Whether you think you're right or wrong, as Henry Ford said, you're right. <laughs> okay? Uh, and so all of a sudden it says, this is important because the emphasis is this. It's the environment that is primarily at one level controlling your genetics, but then belief gets in the way because belief is between the environment and the cells. So it's a filter. And if it's a negative filter, then the cells are going to get 
No, you can't say 10 minutes. Okay. She said 10 minutes. Okay. Okay, there's three kinds of signaling, and this is what I need to close with. <laughs> three kinds of signaling of how biology works, and they all were created before there was anything, just bacteria. Only the most primitive organisms on this planet created three fundamental ways of signaling. Number one, cells can release chemicals like hormones, okay? And that anybody in any other cell that gets in the field will be affected by those chemicals. In the human body, those soluble chemicals are called hormones that the brain releases to the field and controls cells, okay? Number two, uh, the cells, uh, oh wait, how, how did number, where's number two? <laughs> number two, number two. Number two, okay, wait, this thing is being silly. Take time off from my talk right now for a minute so I can Stop do this. Clock. Stop the clock. Okay, let's see what happened. Oh, my goodness. Uh, let's try this. Okay, please come out. Okay, signaling, let's try it again. Okay, signaling, first one, chemicals. Okay, next one. Okay, <laughs> A slide has dropped out to speed up my talk. <laughs> the second one is cell-to-cell -cell contact. Bacteria created little finger-like projections that allowed one cell to talk to the other cell by sending a chemical across the junction. I say in our development, that's called the nervous system. So we have two ways of communicating right now, releasing hormones into the system or nerve-to-nerve -nerve contact. Now, here's the problem. Number one, there's only a few out of the 50 trillion cells that are actually connected to the nervous system. Most of them have no connection to the nervous system. So only a very small percentage are being controlled by nervous system. Number two, yes, I can release hormones to the system. But then I say, well, there's something problematic here, and that is this. What if it's a very important signal I'm trying to send, like telling a cell to divide because we need more of them? Or, or telling a cell to die because we don't need them anymore? I say, are you going to trust, uh, throw a hormone out into the community and hope it gets to the right place? <laughs> well, it, does, it can't do that. And I say, yes, and there was a third process here. And that third process is the fact that viruses are created by bacteria and that these viruses uh, are released as units that then come back to the cell and can attach to the cell. You know what that is right there? It's a memory stick. Wow. It has information. It plugs into the cell and translates information inside the cell. And it's called a virus. And every time you hear from a virus, like, oh my God, it's a scary damn thing. Viruses are going to kill us. Viruses are going to hurt us. It's like, do we have any value of viruses in our system? Yes, the first two, soluble signal, hormones, cell-to-cell -cell signal, nervous system, virus signal? Well, guess what? We just found it. And they're called exosomes. Exosomes are viruses made by our own cells. I say, how does it work? I say, well, it's like a memory inside a membrane. The virus has a memory just, you know, like a code, it joins the cell's surface and then opens itself up and delivers a message to the cell. So it comes from the environment and goes to the cell. I said, what's unique about it? And this is why it's so unique. Viruses are zip-coded. They're zip-coded to only go to certain cells. So in other words, whatever signal I put inside the virus, it's not given to the whole system. It's directly sent to the cell 
that is ha- that needs to have the response. And so this is how private information is organizing itself. I go, well, what's interesting is that the Human Genome Project um, uh, said, hey, look, we're going to look at all the genes that make a human. I said, guess what? I told you already, 3% of the genome makes human proteins. You know what else they found? Guess what? 5 to 8% of the genome makes viral proteins. So more, there are more viral genes in our genome than human protein genes. And it's like, well, you think they're there by accident? No, we make viruses. I say, well, what are they called? And I go, well, exosomes. And I saw them for years when I was doing electron microscopy at the surfaces, just little tiny blebs. And we thought, and have, and many of them are, degradation of the cell. Pieces of old cell, throw it out and let the system digest it, okay? So that's what we thought. And, and we started also find like, how are, they, <clears throat> how are they made? There are vesicles inside the cell uh, that are creating, and there's a vesicle that's creating a whole bunch of these exosomes. Okay, I say, well, how does it work? I say, the membrane evaginates, and then it pinches off pieces, and the little pieces form little round structures, and those little round structures then are released at the surface of the cell, and these structures contain information. I say, well, how does it work? I say, well, here, let's take a look at it. Here's a cell, and they're releasing these all the time. A lot of them are degradation products, but they started to find there were some unique ones. There are some that you can see in the microscope, but most of them are at this size, 30 to 100 nanometers. You can't see them, okay? And there are some bigger ones as well. I say, so what's relevant about it? Well, these vesicles can join to the cell like a virus. That's exactly what they do. And they give their contents into the recipient cell. So number one, the destination is already predetermined where that cell is going to go. It's not, a, I mean, the exosome, it's not an accident. It's got a zip code to hit the right cell, okay? I say, what's in an exosome? Well, guess what? It's got uh, some uh, membrane, of course, which connects it to the destination cell. So they're identity receptors. Identity from where did this exosome come from and where is it going to? Because there are leftover proteins from the source, and new proteins, the zip code ones that are sending it to the destination. And in addition, there are molecules, ICAMs, and uh, integrants. These are molecules that help bind that exosome to the surface so that it can inject its components. I say, what else? And this is a big one. The contents are very critical. Proteins that are in there are enzymes. I say, why is it relevant? Because if the uh, exosome joins to a cell and adds enzymes, it's adding function. So the enzymes can change the function, okay? Uh, In addition, cytokines. This is really critical. Cytokines are hormones of the immune system. So you can affect the immune system. There are nucleic acids. There's RNA, DNA, uh, and and all of this is inside. I say, why is it relevant? Because it is a virus. I say, what is a virus? Definition. An infectious agent of small size that can multiply only in living cells. Uh, and there's a new kind of virus called non-infectious or some called defective, meaning it goes into the cell, but it doesn't necessarily replicate a lot. And they didn't know what it represented. And now we know what's an exosome. An exosome is carrying viral proteins and fragments of viral genomes to the cell, and it's a non-infectious virus. It changes the fate of the target cell. I go, wow, how does it do that? I go, well, it's an interesting point because here's what it does. Oh, wait. Remember our little story? What's the point? The fetus cells are actually migrating into the maternal system. I say, how can it do it? 
And the answer is this. We now know that those fetal cells synthesize exosomes that contain cytokines that are addressing to the immune system cells. So if an immune system cell comes to reject the fetus that's growing, the exosomes are taken up by the maternal cells, synthesized by the fetal cells, and when they're in the maternal cells, they redirect the immune system. They cause it to go away and do something totally different. So as any immune system tries to reject the implant right here, the exosomes from the fetal tissue redirect the maternal immune system to go away. You go, why is it relevant? And I go, it's the same mechanism for cancer. You get a cancer, and what's going to happen? It's going to make exosomes. And what are they going to do? They're going to control the fate of the cells that support the growth of the cancer. And it's really interesting because how does it work? Well, they say, here's a cancer cell. And what's it going to do? It's starting to release exosomes. What's in there? Viral information, DNA, RNA, cytokines. To control what? Watch. They're picked up by the blood. And they're sent to the body. You go, where, where are they going? I say, they got a zip code on them. And so why do cancers grow in selected sites? And the answer is that the system will send exosomes from the pre-cancer cell through the body, zip-coded to find where the cancer is going to grow. And when it gets there, the exosomes infect the local cells, change the function of the cells. It's called terraforming. It makes an environment that prepares for the cancer cell before the cancer cell even got there. And all of a sudden it says, where's all the accident and chance in cancer? I go, hell no. This is an intelligent system. And what we now know, for example, is in the uh, 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 liver, uh, when the exosomes come from the precancer cell, they affect something called a Kupfer cell, which is around the blood vessels. And they infect the, blood, the Kupfer cell, which changes the function and causes the Kupfer cell to change the cells of the community to do what? Support the growth of a cell that hasn't even gotten there yet. Before the cancer cell gets there, the environment is already pre-programmed to support that cancer cell. What do we know about exosomes? One minute, three minutes? Oh my God, I can finish on time. Uh, Here's an example of cancer cell exosomes. What are they involved with? RIBE means, uh, actually what it means is radiation-induced bystander effect. You go, what the hell is that? And the answer is this. You radiate a cancer, and guess what? Other cells start to die that weren't radiated. Why? Because when the cancer cell gets radiated, it makes exosomes to send information to the environment. And part of it, it kills other cells. Uh, that exosome actually causes the bystander effect, okay? Uh, it causes chemoresistance. So it sends information into a cancer cell that prevents chemotherapy from affecting that cancer cell. It changes the genetics of it. Uh, radioresistance. Yes, cancer cells become resistant to the radioactive uh, elements in radiation treatment. Why? Because they're controlling the genetics with these virus-like particles. Uh, epithelial mesenchymal transition, EMT, means a lot of uh, cancer cells are epithelial. They don't migrate. Epithelial cells are layers like skin. 
But if one of them becomes cancerous, it transforms from a skin type of cell into like a connective tissue cell that can migrate. And that's how it gets places. Uh, it, it causes the uh, tumor to escape immune detection. What? The same way the fetus uh, changes the mother's immune system to escape detection. Same thing, okay? Uh, and so basically, uh, another one causes blood vessels to form in the environment where the, blood, where the cancer cell is going to grow. So I say, so what's the bottom line conclusion here that we understand? We have been programmed, A, to believe we are victims. B, we've been programmed that uh, diseases are, have a genetic foundation, which turns out to be less than 1%. We are also programmed with the idea that cancer is an accident of genetic alteration. And it turns out it's not an accident. It, the, people thought, oh, it's just a random mutation. Let me give you a simple fact. It takes a minimum of 14 genes to get a cancer off the ground. I said, well, you mean you had 14 simultaneous mutations that are all the exact genes? It's like, no, not likely. It was part of the system. I say, what was the system? The brain is sending signals to the body. I say, what are these signals? Well, they're nerve signals and hormone signals. I say, why is it relevant? The brain doesn't tell the organs what to do. The brain is like a conductor in an orchestra that says, okay, upgrade your function, downgrade your function, do all this. Now, where's the problem come from? If there's conflict in the consciousness and you have 50 trillion cells and you're sending them mixed messages, then all of a sudden it says, well, what, what message? I said, well, you're sending them hormones. You're sending them nerve signals. And now we know exosomes are also being sent. And it turns out, for example, it, right now, if I take a blood sample from every one of you, you'll have two quadrillion. These numbers get bigger each time. It was like, oh, billions and then trillions, and now we're a quadrillion. You have two quadrillion exosomes in your blood right now. But you know what's interesting? If you have cancer, you've got four quadrillion. It doubles the population. And they say, so what is it? And I say, oh my God, if we can understand the exosomes, we know where it came from because the source uh, in the membrane is, uh, is in the membrane of the exosome. We know where it's going because there's a destination with a zip code. And I say, so our friends in the pharmaceutical industry are like, wow, if we can get that, we can control drug delivery. Uh, unfortunately, there's like uh, four quadrillion of them in a sick person and try to isolate and identify which is what is like way beyond our technology at this moment. But I'm bringing it up because the future of our medical foundation will be talking about exosomes. And so uh, when you hear it, you heard it here. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, and so I just want to conclude very simply is this. We are not victims as we have been programmed. We are creators but we've all been programmed at that. The Jesuits have told you for 400 years they've been programming you. There's a statement that comes from the Jesuits that goes, give me a child until it is seven and I will show you the man. They were the first organization to know that the programming a child gets in the first seven years is a program that will control the rest of your life. We've all been programmed. The movie is called The Matrix. It's real. It's not science fiction. Every human has to be programmed. I'm taking an extra minute. I'm going right now. Okay? And I say, why should I be programmed? I'll give you a simple answer. A child's brain is developing. It's a computer. I say, great. You get a brand new computer. You open it up. It's got a system. You push start. It boots itself up. And I say, now do something with it. 
well, how about write? Or how about drawing? Or how about a spreadsheet? It's like, can't do anything with it. Why? You didn't have any programs in there. A child's consciousness kicks in at age seven. And the reason why is the first seven years, the brain is on record to download behavior by observing parents, family, and community. And now we find out, for example, if a child is adopted into a family where there's a lineage of cancer, the adopted child will get the same family cancer as any of the natural siblings, and yet the adopted child came from totally different genetics. What was the point? The cancer is not genetic. It's programmed. It's learning how to not live in harmony. That's a manifestation. You're sending signals to 50 trillion cells, and it's sort of like if you have a president that's not really good. I didn't say anything. Okay, a president that's not really good. What happens to the people in the country? They become unsettled. They start falling apart. The systems start breaking down. There is no difference in that and the relationship of the brain as the coordinator. And if you send misinformation... You will cause the population to break down. Breaking down is called disease. We always thought it was due to genes. Now we know a simple truth. Less than 1% is due to genes. Your health is in your consciousness, or your lack of health is in your consciousness. And if you understand what I'm saying, and then you go to my website so you can get more information because it was a very short presentation. Uh, there are three things you could look at there. Uh, but the relevance about it is simply this. You are the creator. If it's not being created the way you like, stop thinking you're a victim because everybody wants you to believe you're a victim because then you have no power and they have power. So basically, what's this? Biology of belief. Change. <laughs> you are absolutely phenomenal and I think we each want to take you home so can you also clone us <laughs> alright first question simple question are your books available in other languages yes many about 20 or and 30 and how do languages. they find information on that do they go um, to your website Annie <laughs> no um um that woman in the corner over there, if in, you want to know the language the and availability. Scarf. The beautiful Annie, lady. Stand up for a second, please, Annie. She's a beautiful lady. Yeah. yeah. So you can speak to her about... She language. manages me. Yeah. <laughs> tough job. Tough Hard job. to imagine. Yeah. But I think if you go online and ask for a language version, they can tell you where to get it. It's in every, every you know, 20-some-plus languages now. So given that we can control our food if we want to... The, what we put on our bodies that goes yeah. in our bodies, our consciousness, how do we take into account 5G? 5G is um, trauma to a system. And I'll tell you why. Medicine that looks at energy as, oh, is it dangerous? Well, they study what is called ionizing energy. Yeah, things like uh, UV light can burn a hole in you, okay? Cosmic rays can do this. Electrocution. These are energy fields that can destroy, destroy cells. And so when they look at the impact of energy on cells, they look at it as looking for where the damage comes from. And then there's a belief that now screws it all up, and that is this. If a little energy could hurt the cell, then a lot of energy can really hurt the cell. So they turn up the amplitude of the energy signal, and they say, look, it didn't, it didn't hurt anything, uh, and therefore the energy isn't bad. And the idea is this. Consider this. You use sound and hearing. 
Well, in a range where the volume is low enough, you can hear it and understand it. But what if you crank the volume up too much? All of a sudden, it's just noise. You can't hear a damn thing. And what's the point? The cells are intelligent. They read the environment. If the signals are way out of range, they disregard the signal. So medicine thinking that if I crank the signal, I'll show more of an effect is the exact opposite. When you crank the signal, you lose the effect. But if you reduce the signal to very, very low power, that's the range where cells work. And 5G is in that kind of range of power. And I say, hey, you know, I have no idea what it's going to do. But the idea is, you mean you're just going to throw it out there and not test it? Well, that's the name of the game. And it's like, okay, good luck. And right now, I'll tell you, the problems do not come from high amplitude, high powered energy. The problems come from the lowest field energy. Okay, like cell phone energy, hold it next to your head. It's not a high power, but that's the energy that cells can respond to. And so 5G is a, a potential major problem on this planet because, well, try it and see what works. Okay. How do we protect ourselves? Okay. Protection. And this is it. This is the most important thing you have to recognize. You are surrounded by, and this is, sounds biblical stuff, so just stick with me a second. You're surrounded by white light. I go, what the hell is that? I say, if you've ever seen Curlian photography, Curlian photography reveals that there's a layer of energy surrounding you, okay? And it's light, okay? I say, why is it relevant? I say, if you see a healthy person, the energy layer is complete and intact. If you see a sick person, the energy layer has perforations in it. I say, why is that important? Because it's through the perforations that environmental toxins can come in. But if the light is, you know, surrounding yourself with this white light is intact, then you're impervious to the environment. You can walk across hot coals, but you damn well got to have the belief and hold the white light. Um, I, I use in some of my lectures and even a couple of videos down south. Some people drink strychnine in a religious ecstasy to ver you know, to testify that God protects them. I say, my God, they drink toxic poison, but with a belief system that is so strong, unshakable, they have no effect from drinking strychnine poison. You know, we talk about eating sugar. It's like, wow, Jesus, if you can get through strychnine, what the hell is sugar? You know? Uh, and the reality is what? So what do we do? And the idea is this. Stress breaks down the field. When they looked at people living under high-tension lines in the first research, they found, yes, there are people who get sick under high-tension lines. But they also found there are a lot of people who live under the lines and don't get sick. What was the difference? And the answer is profound again. Because everyone that got sick was already under stress. Stress weakened them. The field took them down. And this is the issue. Stress is responsible for up to 90% of all doctor visits on this planet. Stress is something you can control. And that's the beautiful part. But if nobody tells you about it, we just live a stressful life. And the fact is, stress is the problem. Now, I'll give you another aspect about stress. Simply this. When you're under stress, you release stress hormones, which coordinates the function of the body to run, fight or flight, protect yourself. I say, how does it do it? Number one, it causes the blood vessels in the gut to constrict. Uh, so when you're under stress, sometimes you feel butterflies in the stomach. That's the blood vessels shutting. I say, why does it do that? Because it pushes the blood to the arms and legs so you can run from that saber-toothed tiger. I say, what else does it do? And here's the big one. It shuts down the immune system. Stress hormones shut off the immune system. Why? Because the immune system uses so much energy. 
If you're really sick, you can't get out of bed. I say, you're being chased by a saber-toothed tiger. You've got a bacterial infection. You want to work on that bacteria? You say, the hell with the bacteria right now, because if the tiger gets me, bacteria is the tiger's problem at that moment. Okay? And so the very conclusion is very important here, and I say... Stress hormones are so effective at shutting off the immune system that medical uh, practitioners give the recipient of organ transplants before they receive a foreign organ. They give them stress hormones because it shuts down the function of the immune system so they do not reject the foreign graft. Well, that's therapeutic use, but what about out here on the street? That's destructive use of stress hormones, and that's why illness, you shut off the growth and maintenance of the body because you stop the blood flow to the organs that take care of you, and you shut off the immune system, the system that takes care of you, and, and, and the reason is this, stress was only designed to run away from the tiger. You're stressed, 10 minutes later, if you make it, no more stress. But as you know, in this world, stress is 24-7, 365. We were never designed to be in long-term stress, it's debilitating. One more question, and then we're going to wrap up the program. How does sound affect our biology, and how can sound help heal our cells, DNA, and everything else? The idea that we have matter, like atoms, and that we're made out of particles, is an illusion. Albert Einstein referred to reality as a persistent illusion, okay? Uh, and the relevance about this is, what is the atom made out of? If you take it apart, it's not particles inside. There are vortices of energy like nanotornadoes. And a vortice of energy spins at a vibrational frequency. And when you take a CAT scan, MRI scan, PET scan, you're not looking at the physical body. All the structures you see in the scan are just energy structures because there's not photons. And so you can see the organs in the body. I go, yeah, but you're not seeing the physical things. What you're seeing is an energy field. And energy vibrates. I go, right. So I say, well, there are energies that can add to other energies. That's called interference, but called constructive interference. And you experience that when you're in a place where there's energy coming, and all of a sudden you feel elevated because, like, man, I felt really good here. Whether the other people are in harmony with you, the environment's in harmony with you, the place where you are when you're having constructive interference is interpreted by the biology as a good place because energy is life. The more energy you have, the more life you have. So we seek good vibes. That's what constructive interference is. And that's how you stay alive. In contrast, there are other energies that come in and can cancel your energy. And that's called destructive interference. But it's also called bad vibes. And it's an information to you. And it says what? Vibration is your life. You perceive yourself as physical. The illusion is it's all energy. You're not physical. It's all energy. But then when it comes to sound, that's a form of energy. I say, well, if the sound is in harmony with you, you'll feel good vibes about that sound. And good vibes enhance your vitality. But if the sound conflicts with your normal vibration and can cancel that vibration, it will, it will shut down your energy and your system, and that's why your body starts to respond like, I'm being you know, challenged, I'm losing energy, and the idea is if you're feeling bad vibes, it says the energy in your field is not supporting you. What kind of energy? Sound energy, light energy, all the whole spectrum is energy, so any one of those spectra the zones can be used to uh, either enhance something or to cancel something. 
You can kill cells if you put the you know negative uh, energy in there. You can destroy cells, and and this is a, a, a therapeutic use of it as well. You can enhance cells' vitality, or you can cancel the energy of cells and cause them to die. You are awesome. Thank you, Dr. Lipton. Oh, thank all of you so much. Thank you for coming. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. It took three years to get Dr. Lipton here. And... Thank you for making the time to be here for our audience. All right, my name is Adria Breyer. I'm the chair of today's program from the Health and Medicine Committee. We're closing today's program. 116 years of enlightened discussion, and we are now adjourned. I'm going to ask everyone to go out that door, okay? Then Dr. Lipton can be out there. Thank you.